Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo. Today, our guests, plural, will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. For the first time ever, our episode will feature siblings. Yes, doctors Emily Crash and Patrick Crash, her younger brother, who will tell us about obstacles to residency training for Catholics, even in a relatively pro-life area of the Midwest. As brother and sister, Emily graduated a year ahead of Patrick in the same program. Andrew, why should our listeners care about this? Yeah, you know, I I was talking to a cousin of mine the other day who's a academic, he's a college professor, and just explaining to him that there's a lot of struggles going through medical training and medical education. A lot of folks think about, should I even do this or not? And he was shocked to hear that. And so to me... Oh, he didn't even know. He, he He's like, I can't even imagine that. I mean, wow. all these hospitals are saint something or other. And uh, <laughs> the nuns, are, don't they work in the hospitals? Yeah, like the, the N-O-N-E-S's do. Yeah, and I <laughs> we had a great conversation about that because he was shocked. And I was also shocked that this wasn't self-evident. But uh, the culture in which we live, especially the medical culture is very anti-Christian, it's anti-ethics, and in many ways it's anti-science in the name of of certain agendas. And so having struggles in medical school and residency is something that's not unique. It's something that comes to all of us. Uh, Emily and Patrick were kind enough to come on and highlight a couple of those things, but the, the way I look at it is it's not even so much about their individual experience at a particular program or anything like that. These are universal experiences. I've never met uh, a person who took their faith seriously, even Christians, not Catholics, who said, I, I had no trouble in residency. People accepted me for who I am, what I believe in, um, do what you think's best for the patient. Uh, those are not the conversations they have. What they have is you're going to toe the line, and this is the secular order, and if you don't jump, you're not going to be part of the club. And so I know for myself, I felt very much like I was walking on eggshells my entire training. And so uh, never never happier than to be done with training and get on to actually just caring for patients, which is what I wanted to do. Where you can do it according to your best judgment, which is really what patients come to you for, and, and not to be a vending machine. Patients can tell the difference. They can. Yes, they can. And to uh, say something that Emily told us offline, she thought her experience was probably better than she would have gotten uh, at the at, than the average program. So yeah. this is not to pick on a particular program. Like you said, this is universal. And so don't don't feel alone, but also maybe reach out and support mm. your residents. And for our medical trivia question of the day, before we get to some fascinating stories about residency training for Catholics, the category is family unfriendly family medicine residency programs. As of 2021, there were 741 family medicine residency programs in the United States. A group called Ready stands for Reproductive Health Education in Family Medicine, was founded at the Department of Family and Social Medicine at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York, in 2004. Their stated mission is mainstreaming abortion in family medicine. Out of those 741 family medicine programs, how many, according to the Ready website, now integrate abortion training as a required part of their programs? Multiple choice. Is it 11, 20, 39, 51 or 106 out of the 741 programs you'll hear the answer at the end of the show but we'll be back after the break first with emily crash and some enlightening experiences about being a catholic in residency here on dr doctor here we are with the first of our two interviews of young physicians on dr doctor here we have emily crash a doctor of osteopathy, native of Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we are recording Dr. Doctor in the comfort of a home today. She has a bachelor's in cellular microbiology from St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, her doctorate from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine, and a graduate in 2021 of a Midwestern family practice residency program, and she's very active in the Catholic Medical Association. Emily, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, now, Emily, when you were accepted into your residency, there was a hospital, had been Catholic, still had a Catholic name, but was no longer formally Catholic, but it still followed the Catholic ethical and religious directives where you were all set to do your obstetric and gynecology work. And you thought the world was just great, and then something happened. 
Yes, and part of the reason why I picked the residency program that I attended was because of my mentors like Andrew sitting next to me and also uh, Dr. Kate Hyman uh, went to the program and they had a very good experience there. Uh, the hospital where we would do our deliveries was uh, Catholic and uh, sort of in, in name because the organization that bought the hospital no longer um, or was not Catholic, but uh, they still followed the ethical and religious directives there. So I was under the impression that I wouldn't be um, having to involve myself at all with tubal ligations and and other um, and other uh, procedures that that I felt uncomfortable with and so and that was how it was when I did my audition rotation with the program I knew that I wouldn't really have to come across those experiences mm -hmm. and just felt oh I would be protected there but about a month before I started residency I got an email that said oh well actually that uh, birth center completely closed down now the hospital is actually closed entirely, but uh, <laughs> but and yet there's for people who aren't familiar with residency picking and training and stuff, it, the whole system for medical education you're kind of committed at each step. So at this step, even if you get this bad news, you can't turn back and go pick someplace that might be a better fit. Right, or you have to wait a whole year and apply again, which I was not going to do. That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. So we were informed that I would be doing. Uh, deliveries in our obstetric rotation at a different hospital and having to work with the OBGYNs at the hospital and assist on uh, uh, C-sections but also on tubal ligations uh, but at least um, I knew that I wouldn't have to necessarily participate but it was just not something I expected. Did, did they give you any kind of grace kind of knowing your thought process like that was a big deal to me or or when you're kind of thrown into it, were there any accommodations that they could make for you? No one really uh, brought that up. So I just um, kind of of my own volition just realized, okay, well, I'm going to have to do kind of what I did in medical school. And just any time uh, there uh, was a procedure involved, most, most often tubal ligations, um, I would just have to have the conversation with whoever I was working with and tell them that I would not be participating in that part of the C-section. And at yeah. first I just thought I wouldn't have to deal with those conversations and thought I would have smooth sailing and not have to have these awkward conversations. How often did you have to have those? Um, more often than I expected. Uh, a lot of times they wouldn't necessarily say, oh, there's going to be a tubal ligation with this C-section. So yeah. because it's not a big deal to everyone else. Yeah. So I didn't always know. If I knew ahead of time, I would usually try and you know ask, oh, the other intern or one of the other residents to uh, assist on those uh, C-sections. But if it was a surprise and I didn't realize it, then I would have to talk with usually only the OBGYN who we were working with and tell them. Of course, if it was someone who I'd worked with before, they already knew. But most, um, uh, kind of interestingly, many of those OBGYNs were actually Catholic. So oh that made the conversations especially awkward because I couldn't really say, oh, well, it's a religious reason that I'm not doing it. So I'd usually... Yeah, that's indicting. Were were you met with uh, <laughs> were you met with a lot of resistance, or they're like, we've heard of people like you before. Yeah, they they at least you know were used to I think dealing with residents, especially you know since with you going through the program. So yeah. I know when I when I interviewed, they said, oh yeah, we have we've we've dealt with residents like you before. <laughs> that's good. That's good. But yeah, it was you know, always always awkward just knowing. Okay, I know this this doctor that I'm working with is Catholic, but they don't have the same views as me, so. I would usually say, well, from an ethical perspective, I, I have to step aside during this part of the procedure. And if you don't want me to participate at all, I, I can leave and we can find someone else. But usually they wanted me to help out with the that takes the It takes a it. lot when you're in a student perspective to yes. step up like that because these are the people that ultimately have uh, control of your future yeah they they have control of everything except the interest on your student loans that's the only thing that you're in charge of everything else they hey if they say jump and you say no then you're out you're you quit you lose that's what it feels like and so uh that's that's very brave tell us about you had a story when a patient requested a medicine that you, you didn't feel you could provide. Tell us about that. Yes, I actually uh, got a message uh, through our electronic medical records patient portal uh, from a patient who I'd actually delivered her baby six months prior to her sending me this message and she didn't come for follow-up appointments and uh, wouldn't let me treat her 
postpartum depression and I hadn't really heard from her. And then I get this message from her asking me to prescribe the abortion pill, RU486. And I was um, kind of shocked. I didn't know that she was pregnant again and uh, surprised that you know, she wanted me to do this. That's that's why we have email, so people can just email easy questions to the doctor. <laughs> yes. You know, usually nights and weekends is a great time for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then so I, of course, responded to her, I really think you should come in for an appointment, and we can discuss this, and, you know, explain to her at least, you know, that I wasn't going to be uh, providing this uh, type of treatment for her. And so she came into the appointment, but she couldn't actually... Uh, tell me with words what she wanted to do. I think it was, she was very young and um, in a very abusive relationship. And she, I think deep down knew what she was requesting of me, but it was just so hard for her to verbalize because she knew the gravity of the situation and didn't really wanna, she wanted basically to remove, I think the reality from what she was asking me to do for her. And so that was a definitely a tough conversation, but I, I told her that I can offer her many other resources and put her in touch with the Women's Care Center. How, how did that go with your supervising physicians? Well, uh, I usually... <laughs> Good for you, Emily. <laughs> yes. Strong so, work for making her come in to try and talk to her. Yeah, so usually <laughs> uh, whenever I had any sort of patient encounter that was a, a big deal like this, I would pick and choose which of my staff doctors to go to uh, who I knew would be more in line with my values. So, because in residency, for the most part, you have to run stuff by the attending doctors. Less so as you, you get closer to graduation. But for any big things, they expect you're going to consult them, and and then they sometimes have to chart behind you on the chart. Right, and especially for any of our pregnant women, uh, we always have to discuss their care with with the experienced doctor, one of our associate directors, and. So I would usually go to our one of our directors who's actually Mormon because he was one of the the doctors in my program who I knew would at least was ironically more in line with my values than most of the what others. What a blessing! Yeah, yeah it's a uh, sometimes there are strange bedfellows, but you mm-hmm. you think about just the way secular medicine's going, and there's a lot of people that that don't really have their heads screwed on straight anymore. Exactly. What What did he say? Did he have any advice for you or comments about this? I mean, I told him, you know, what my plan was to try and get her better, better care and told him that I really was not going to assist her in, in that. And he, I think, is like most of the other people in the program. They are not, they would never, they don't want to be involved directly with abortion. They don't really always think that, they don't really think referring for abortion is an involvement. So he said, well, if you want to do that, you could, but I'm not going to require you to do that. So, and I told him I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not going to assist her in any way in getting this abortion. And Man, so that was good to have that kind of support. I know we're going to turn to your brother, Patrick, who's got some, some kind of hair-raising stories as well about residency. But would you have any, I guess, comments or suggestions for folks applying to residency? Would, did you feel like your experience was average, better or worse than average? I mean, I think I um, had probably an average experience. Um, I know when I was interviewing that there were a lot of programs that, not a lot, I mean, not a lot that trained in abortion, some that would would train residents in abortion, but a lot that are just very involved in or in, in uh, birth control and most, uh, most of the programs uh, have a lot of training in that. So I kind of knew what I was getting into. I knew that no matter I, where I went to, even Catholic uh, hospitals, yeah. that'll often require residents to, to train. But most of them, at least in family medicine, will allow residents to follow their beliefs. And uh, On a scale of 1 to 10, how happy are you to be done with residency? I would say probably pretty up up there, nine or ten. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, thanks for being on. We're going to have you back to talk more about the the thirty thousand foot view of residency. But uh, we appreciate hearing your stories today as well. Yeah, and now we get to hear Patrick, who graduated just a year behind you. Where did he graduate from college, Emily? He went to Notre Dame. He went to Notre Dame. Wow. Yep, and they still accepted him in residency. Well, good for him. No, his stories are going to be outstanding, and he moved out to Montana. Wow, I guess he liked the mountains and fly fishing. 
So <laughs> he loves fly fishing more than anything in this world. <laughs> even <laughs> even his big sister. <laughs> no, even yeah, I think I think he loves his wife a little bit more. <laughs> I didn't get to ask him that one when we recorded this the other day. So next time we'll have to put him on the spot. <laughs> well, we'll be back with Patrick Crash, interviewed by Andrew Mullally after the break here on Doctor Doctor. And we're back today with Dr. Doctor, talking in this episode about family medicine residency, especially. We've got Dr. Patrick Crash here, a recent grad from residency. And uh, Patrick, thanks for being on. It's an honor to be on the show. I always love uh, listening to your show at lunchtime during residency. So (laughs) You're too kind. And we appreciate you kind of helping pull back the curtain a little bit. You know, we're talking to Emily as well today. And uh, a lot of people, you know, you see residency kind of on TV, maybe those doctor shows, and and some of that's real, but we're trying to kind of show some of the other side of residency, especially uh, some of the unique challenges, being a Christian and being a Catholic in residency. So you have a couple of stories, I think, that highlight this. Why don't you tell us tell us the story? Yeah, well, uh, you never think that, you know, you're going to be discriminated against based on your faith uh, during residency. I think most programs up front, they include that in everything when you're interviewing it. Hey, this is a program where we accept everybody here and we want you to be able to practice how you want. Um, But in reality, um, you know, a lot of people don't like our views and the way that we practice as Catholics. And it can be challenging, especially in residency, when you have to be answering to uh, everybody the whole time. You don't get to make all the decisions on your own. Everybody's always checking what you do. And it's, so I think it's that really tough because like you, you sign your name to things and you order medicines, but at the end of the day uh, with someone supervising you so closely, different someone's, you kind of have to do what they tell you to the extent that you can, right? Because your grades and your progression and stuff, I mean, throughout all medical training, but especially residency, it depends a lot on, you know, if, if they want to give you a hard time or not. Exactly. So kind of, tiptoeing around some of those issues and can definitely be a difficult time. Yeah. So what, what happened to you? You said you felt discriminated against. Yeah. I think one of the first things happened just a few weeks into residency. Um, one of my fellow residents in my class was trying to put together a program to uh, give out quote unquote sex goodie bags to teenagers who are coming in for their well child visits. So we're talking mostly high school age kids, some even younger, but they, you know, it was kind of their passion. They wanted to have uh, bags that included condoms and lube and sex ed materials. And they asked if there was any suggestions and input from other residents of what we should include in the bags. And so I responded to the email and a group thread that, we should include pamphlets on chastity and abstinence because I think if you're going to, you know, include all those other things, then what I really want to talk about with these kids and what I go out of my way to talk about with these kids at these visits is, uh, you know, being abstinent and maybe not giving into all the peer pressures around them and doing something differently that ultimately is going to give them the best health outlook. Um, So if we really care about these patients, I think that's what we need to be talking about. How, how are you met with that suggestion? <laughs> I can imagine maybe they, they hadn't thought of that. Of, of a lot of criticism and ridicule from most of my peers. Um, so, you know, it was, it was tough. People were just ridiculing me uh, online in this group thread and responding with these nasty emails saying, well, we're just going to dump all our teenagers with STDs on your panel and you can keep preaching abstinence to them and let's see what happens. So they, they took it as a big joke and uh, it hurt pretty bad because, you know, if, if we're open to hearing everybody's options, uh, then I thought that we've got a lot to give, uh, you know, faith and, and morals aside. Uh, it's truly the best medicine. The only way that these teenagers can prevent STDs, unwanted pregnancy, emotional trauma, things that kids should not be going through. Right. Yeah. And so uh, if you, you know, if you flip the script on them, and I remember asking some of these residents who are making fun of me, well, would you just be giving sex goodie bags to your own kids? Some of them already had kids um, when they turn 13, 14, 15 years old. And turns out a lot of them had different standards for their own children than what they're going to talk about patients with and freely give out, acting like, oh, well, you know, these certain individuals, maybe this socioeconomic class or whatever, they they don't have the restraint. They don't have 
you know, this is just what's happening. So let's uh, just, you know, encourage it, acting like it's a rite of passage when um, in reality, maybe you could be the only positive force there in this kid's life telling them they don't need to be doing those, those things and could, uh, you know, have a completely different perspective that is going to give them the best medical outcomes. And so if we, if we are really caring about them, why wouldn't we be talking about the only thing that can prevent all these undesirable things uh, when you're a teenager? See, that's so sad to hear because that is the case so often that, I don't know, you think that doctors are all altruistic. And I think many are. You try to be. I try to be. But when it comes down to if you're going to give different recommendations to your own family than you would to someone else, I mean – (laughs) <laughs> that that's terrible. I think that's really terrible. I, I mean, and, and it, it reflects on how you look at the patient too, because you're not loving them as a whole person and wanting the best for them. You're already trying to figure out, well, I know I can't trust them. Uh, I'm going to just do what I can to hopefully prevent some problems, but that nobody ever wants to talk about how ineffective condoms and other things are for all of these ails are supposed to fix. Exactly. Man, so that that was right off the bat. So you kind of set yourself up in residency. I don't know. I could see see that as a target on your back a little bit. Right. So right away, I had to be that guy. And um, but ultimately, it's you know who I am as a as a Catholic, and it's hard to believe that you're going to be experiencing such discrimination right off the bat. And I knew things were going to be challenging, but I definitely didn't foresee as. Uh, that it was going to be as tough as it actually was to be, you know, authentically Catholic and how I'm practicing medicine and, and that being such a problem with most other uh, of my peers and many of my attendings too. I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's in academics and he's a, a college professor. And I was explaining to him that a lot of Catholics are afraid to go into medicine anymore just because of having to deal with these things. He's He was shocked. He said, I, I never would have thought that it'd be hard to be a Catholic in in medical training. I thought medicine would be one of the easiest things because you're trying to help people. Um, but, you know, stories like yours highlight just how hard it is sometimes. Did you feel like throughout your training, you you were able to work effectively as a team or were you, you kind of pushed to the side because of this? Um, I think my program director did a really good job of standing up for me. Uh, when things like this got brought up or there was some, you know, certain issues or patient complaints or uh, uh, concerns from my peers, then he always wanted to get my side of the story and address these things and was very, uh, you know, very concerned that any of this stuff would be happening and, you know, told me that he was proud of me for uh, having having kind of an unwavering fortitude on this stuff and not bending to what other people want me to think and want me to do and believe. And so uh, it was definitely, uh, you know, coming down from the top, a positive experience um, and told me to, you know, keep being who I am and uh, keep standing up for yourself. And uh, it's impressive to see, you know, those beliefs um, coming from you and I don't want you to change. And so it was clear even from early on when these concerns were brought up uh, that he had my back and that was important going forward. You're highlighting the importance of a residency director. Would you say that's one of the things that people applying to residency should look at as an important piece? Yeah, I think that's of utmost importance because if he wasn't open to hearing my side of the story with a lot of these things, then, uh, you know, things could have definitely gone a much worse route, could have maybe been fired or or who knows what. But uh, I think you need yeah. to really feel that out when you're applying to residency, um, something that Catholic medical students really need to tease out when they're in that process. Yeah, when, when the going gets tough, uh, are you going to have their support or not? Right. Man, I can't believe that. There's so many parents, I think, that are afraid to bring their kids to the doctor for just that. You know, when they when they say, I'm going to talk to the kid on, on my own right now. We want the parents to step out. Uh, I think they're afraid of them getting a sex goodie bag. But in fact, in some places, that is what's happening. Right. So no that doubt. is, th- that's terrible. Really, I think it's, you know, it's crazy that we think that, we should need to take parents out of this conversation. The ones who are supposed to love and protect them the most um, need to be able to hear yeah. all the stuff that the doctor has to say, really. Well, I, I can only think in, in the 10 or 15 minutes I have with them, I'm only going to make such an impact. And the parents are with them, you know, 24-7. <laughs> if they're hiding it from the parents and telling me, I, I'm not going to be able to help. Really, 
no matter what almost, you know, but uh, I appreciate that. And, you know, that's interesting that you bring that up because there was actually another story I thought that was very compelling just about the challenges of trying to live out your faith and patient care, things that when you finish training, just looks like good common sense. But during training, you know, when you've got supervisors who might disagree with you, uh, they can give you a hard time. Tell us about the, the, the story of the pregnant patient that I, I had heard before we interviewed. Yeah, this one, it's really interesting. And, you know, I think it's an important story to be told, not just because uh, and I don't want to be pointing blame or, uh, uh, you know, talking about how tough this was, but I think it's just an important story for the pro-life message. And I think it's an important story for Catholic medical students, residents, and, and doctors to hear. And I think just moms and dads and, and moms and dads-to-be um, to hear this conversation uh, because of, you know, what a powerful testament this patient actually turned out being too um, in this encounter. Yeah, it's uh, and, and I think too, this happened to you, but you're probably not alone in experiences like this, trying to advocate for a patient and yeah. uh, and sometimes getting pushback, right? Right. And so what happened, uh, it was near the end of my second year of residency and uh, an OB patient who I was primarily responsible for throughout her whole pregnancy and then for her delivery um, ended up ha- having a baby with Down syndrome. And so uh, she was in her 40s. She was actually non-English speaking um, and, you know, had various other social um, constraints as well, too. And uh, we found out that she was going to have a baby, most likely have a baby with Down syndrome uh, from a cell-free fetal DNA test that we uh, administered at about 12 weeks shortly after she had established care with us. That, that's one of the fancy new tests that can tell if it's a boy or a girl really early on, right? Right, exactly. And that's what a lot of people like to use it for. Um, but it's also kind of standard of practice for um, women of more advanced maternal age. So after 35, um, you'd be, you know, silly not to get that. But at the same time, there's some moral qualms there because unfortunately, in, in some countries like Iceland, they use these early tests to make sure that they're aborting all babies that have trisomies. Yeah, so- the, the reason Medicaid might pay for a test like that is not to let you know if you have a little boy or a little girl. It's because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of places people advocate abortion for those babies. Right, exactly. And so uh, we proceeded with the test and uh, um, she ended up, uh, you know, we, we found out that her baby was likely going to have Down syndrome and no test is perfect. But with her age, the post-test probability on this was over 99.9% that uh, it was likely that her baby had a trisomy 21 um, from the blood test. And how, how did she take that news, especially being not English speaking? Did she appreciate what was going on? Right. So that's where we get into a lot of trouble here um, in how this story takes a turn because um, unfortunately, we had difficulty contacting her and this with the language barrier and everything else, this wasn't something we wanted to deliver over the phone. So I had my staff calling her almost every day to just reschedule and get in as soon as possible rather than waiting four weeks for her next visit. Uh, But uh, despite rescheduling and trying to get her into clinic, she didn't show up until 20 weeks. So now we went seven weeks knowing this information, but feeling uncomfortable telling that over the phone, especially with the language barrier. Um, this is something that's very serious that we need to have uh, face-to-face, patient-to-doctor. And uh, so that's when kind of got into trouble with my attendings. So when when a patient misses visits like that, you know, I, I think it depends on the patient population too, because at least when I was in training, we care for a lot of underserved people, people who don't speak English, immigrants, you know, things of that nature. It was pretty normal for folks to come to some appointments and not come to others for exactly. a variety of, of reasons. Was that weird to you that, that she wasn't coming? No, I wasn't surprised by that. Uh, like you said, we would get that a lot uh, with certain patient populations. And so um, it you know, did make things more difficult for everybody. And, and I was concerned for her because I really wanted her to know this news as soon as possible, uh, just from a preparing standpoint. You know, 
What, uh, what are your plans as a family? What community resources do we need to get you in touch with? What other tests do we need to do going forward, such as a fetal ultrasound because of congenital heart defects that could be going on? So I really right. wanted to get her in and, and have this full conversation. And so uh, what happened is she finally came at 20 weeks pregnant, now halfway through the pregnancy. And I sat her down and before we did anything else and just said, hey, we, we have something really important to talk about. And uh, despite the language barrier, I felt like we really connected at that visit. And so um, when, when it finally got through um, exactly what uh, her baby was experiencing and, and what to expect for the pregnancy, she just broke down in tears and she was crying and, and gave me a big hug. And I started crying right away too. It's, it's something that's difficult for, you know, everybody to hear. Um, and so you know, we were, we were having this conversation about what to expect and, and the challenges that uh, her baby with Down syndrome was then going to face, you know, throughout life and, um, you know, talked about community resources, talked about what we needed to do med- medically for the rest of the pregnancy. And uh, how, how are then, you talking to her if there's the language barrier? Uh, we had a video interpreter here. Um, okay. And so uh, it's through, unfortunately, a little... Uh, a video screen, like a, an iPad uh, with specific languages that we could dial up and have them interpret for us. So this wasn't sign language. You were pretty confident she knew exactly, you know, you guys could have a good conversation. Right, exactly. And um, so finally, I, I got to the point that, you know, this is this has been hard for us to talk about and, and mom is still crying. And, and I just said, you know, I don't know what your resources are like at home, um, but this is going to be, a, you know, this is a diagnosis for the whole family here that everybody, everybody's lives are going to change. And, um, you know, if you don't think you have the resources at home to, to take care of this baby, then there are lots of, of wonderful men and women out there and families who are happy to adopt a special needs child. And they take pride in doing that. And so they're, you know, we just started talking about that as an option and she immediately grabbed her belly and started crying some more and, and said that, you know, nobody uh, except her was going to take care of this baby. And she had many kids at home and she said, many of them are teenagers and everybody's going to learn how to help. And this is uh, um, something we're all going to do together. And it was really powerful for me to see that and, and uh, um, such strength and, and faith and, and confidence in her family and, um, you know, I, I'm sure in the Lord too, to, uh, to just be set in stone. You know, she's just been given this uh, diagnosis and, and suddenly she's, she's got her mind made up already. And I was really impressed to see that. Well, that sounds all kind of run of the mill, right? I mean, missed some appointments, but you got the message delivered, informed consent, so to speak, you know, and delivered everything in person, which is a nice way of doing it. Where's the trouble? I don't get it. So shortly after this time, then um, I was at uh, Weekly Didactics, and I just got a, a text message from my program director saying that we needed to talk after didactics, and I didn't think anything of it, and you know I had no idea what about. And I go into his office uh, afterwards after work's supposed to be done for the day, and suddenly there's a panel of four attendings sitting in there with notebooks and pens ready, and. I don't know what I'm getting ambushed for, but uh, I'm suddenly getting very nervous uh, about the preceding conversation. Yeah, that's not a normal thing to happen. That that uh, does not happen in the course of things normally. So you kind of had a feeling something was up. Right. And uh, initially, right away, they asked me if I knew why I was there. And I said, I have no idea. I'm, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I did Usually not. Usually it's speeding. At least for me, I don't know. (laughs) So they said, well, we figured you heard about it because everybody's talking about this. And I just say, talking about what? I've got no idea. And uh, right away, they get to the point and they say, well, there's multiple attendings who think that you should be fired for, uh, you know, your care of uh, your current OB patient, your pregnant lady with uh, the child with trisomy 21. I said, well, what's been wrong with, uh, with the care that I've been giving? Just, you know, please talk to the patient if there's any concerns because she's expressed great gratitude for the care she's been getting. And, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong. And immediately they go into, uh, it turns out that you had the information about her child having Down syndrome at 
12 to 13 weeks and she didn't find out about it until 20 weeks. So um, there's a lot of people thinking you were trying to hide that because of your faith uh, so that she couldn't get an abortion because she'd be hard pressed to find somebody to do a late term abortion. And that would have been a lot easier at 12 or 13 weeks. And now she's halfway through her pregnancy and she probably can't get an abortion at least anywhere nearby. Wow. So from from their perspective, they would have encouraged her to have an abortion and they think that you tried to to hide that information from her so she couldn't get one. Right, exactly. And so Okay. That's pretty I, aggressive. I mean, that's not right. uh no benefit of the doubt there. <laughs> right. And apparently this was all being talked about behind my back and this was the you know, the the hot gossip at the time and I had no idea this was going on. Gee whiz. Was your program director there who had supported you in the past? Right. And so he was the one running the meeting. And so um, even though I was being barraged with all sorts of questions from everybody else, he you know, made it clear that I needed to say my side of the story and uh, um, really kind of stood up for me there, which was great. Um, but you know, it didn't help the, the fact that there were still multiple people who you know, thought I should be fired. And I think the person who started this all actually <laughs> wasn't in there. Um, oh, so wow. It was hard to get my points across. Gee whiz. So as that meeting unfolded, I mean, you kind of explained yourself. Were were you well-received, received on face value? Um, Were you put on probation or something like that? I mean, how did this all play out? You know, I think it took a while before the meeting kind of turned around in my favor because I was being attacked from from all sides and – they, they kept on bringing up hypothetical scenarios and just saying, well, you know, it's great that this woman didn't want an abortion, um, but, you know, what if she did? What would you have done? And I, <laughs> <laughs> and, that's and, terrible. I mean, they're really just, uh, I mean, that's, that's not a, a fair thing at all, just trying to make you say something they're not going to like, you know. Right, exactly. And, and meanwhile, I... I felt blessed that I was the one who got to take care of this patient because I thought those conversations could have gone so differently if no you know, one of the other residents who was very um, you know, pro-abortion would have would have been the primary caregiver for this patient. And so wow. I explained that to them that you know I, I go from feeling lucky that I've had this great bond with this patient. It's been a very meaningful experience with me and uh, with, with you know for the both of us and suddenly I'm being attacked for it when you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I had my staff calling her just about every day to uh, um, to try to get her in and talk about this important news. No matter what your views are on on uh, on the matter, you know that this is important news that a patient needs to know. Um, right. So, you know, I, you probably I had staff there. that could back you up there. Hey, we tried to call all these times and stuff. Right. And then they were upset for me, upset with me for not referring uh, this patient to maternal fetal medicine for, you know, as a high risk pregnancy too. And I countered with, well, the patient's been completely healthy the whole time. She's declined any referrals that have been offered. The only MFM options that we normally send them to are very pro-abortion. And I didn't want that conversation to, you know, to be had. And so I would have felt morally culpable, uh, you know, if she's saying that she wants an abortion or, or something along those lines to um, to just you know willy nilly refer her out to people who I know are going to um, press this issue. And so, um, yeah. lucky you know, lucky for me, she didn't want any of that and was even offended at, at the thought of uh, giving up her her baby for adoption. And so, you know, we didn't have to have those conversations. But my attendings they they couldn't get it through their heads that um, even if she wanted that, how I was not going to refer her to. Uh, to somebody to get an abortion because they didn't understand how that violated my own moral code and ethics. And, and, you know, ultimately I'm not responsible to, uh, to give a patient medical options that I don't think are medicine, right? Just, yeah. just like I wouldn't, you know, tell somebody who's got super high cholesterol that they can fix it all with supplements. And I, I brought up these scenarios and yeah. just said, I mean, this to me is not medicine. So, you know, take take the faith and morals aside, and uh, I'm I'm not obliged to provide my patients with bad medical options, whether it's through myself or through a referral. Man, good for you! Holy cow! So that sounds like it was a long meeting. <laughs> yeah. 
my wife was worried about me since I was uh, held up for an hour. She was she was already home from work waiting for me. Gee whiz. So ultimately, your program director supported you, and did this did this kind of all go away? How did it, how did it end up? I think the the conversation that day ended with, you know, uh, uh, something I think really resonated with the program director, which was, you know, you, you may not think that uh, this is any form of discrimination because you may just think it's my silly ideas or views. Um, and, you know, how could we be discriminating uh, against a, a white male Christian in our program? That stuff doesn't happen. But I said, you know, you'd, you'd really be tiptoeing around this if this was somebody's views because they're Muslim or, you know, somebody's uh, cultural background or, you know, if they're a different skin color. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, um, I'm facing more discrimination in this program than I see any of my peers facing. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's who I am as a person, as a Catholic, um, trying to practice medicine in a difficult environment. And it's not just a, a silly idea or view. This is really who I am as a person. And I think you need to go out of your way to, uh, to make sure I'm respected in, in practicing the way that I see fit. Man. And when family medicine residency is three years, mm-hmm. when in the course of residency did this occur? It occurred uh, right at the end of my second year and into my third year. Uh, uh, right as that was starting. And so, um, yeah. so you had the pleasure to, to work under these folks who were giving you such a hard time for another year after that. Exactly. Okay. And so, how did uh, that, how did that go? <laughs> it, uh, it was definitely difficult and I had a lot of anger and hatred in my heart and, um, was also, you know, scared to keep doing what I'm doing, right? I, I was told that there are multiple people asking for me to be fired. And I had to work under these attendees for the rest of my residency. So, um, <laughs> That's really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> that and, sounds really bad. I mean, it's I'm laughing because uh, it, it's hard to even appreciate, I think, for people outside of medical education. But there's it's such an intimate relationship working with your attendings and uh, – if they want to give you a hard time, I mean, they can make life really challenging. And then, you know, you're constantly, I know a lot of people are constantly afraid. Yeah. If they let you go, it's, it's not like you can go someplace else. I mean, that's really, there's a huge burden of, of kind of suffering through this and getting through training because otherwise, if you're, if you don't complete training, a lot of times you can't practice. Right. Exactly. So all those thoughts are going through my head and, uh, you know, decide that, it's going to be tough, but I need to just put my head down and keep doing what I'm doing. And um, I, I definitely was feeling sorry for myself at first. And I like to tell this story to everybody, to all my Catholic friends. And, you know, because I, I felt like a martyr standing up for something. And uh, I, I, you know, wanted them to, to hear it and feel sorry for me. And it wasn't until I heard a really nice talk, even, you know, just a couple of weeks later at Theology on Tap that summer, um, that was on holding grudges and anger and forgiveness. And, uh, and I realized I was looking at this all the wrong way. And I really needed to start praying for, uh, you know, not only a, a great outcome with this pregnancy, but also praying for uh, these attendings who were so passionately, you know, pro-abortion and, and having these evil thoughts. And, you know, they need my prayers more than anybody. And so um, I really at that point on kind of took it to prayer. And, uh, um, at the end of the day, things ended up working out really well for, for, uh, that pregnancy and delivery, uh, everything went smoothly and, uh, had a beautiful, healthy baby. And oddly enough, I had to deliver this baby with the attending who started this whole fiasco. And, <laughs> that sounds and, providential. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it made me really, really nervous and scared that, you know, of course, the, the baby comes uh, on the night that she's in there. But she was. at the end of the day, uh, everything went well and she couldn't stop talking and the nurses couldn't stop talking about how a beautiful, how much a beautiful baby this was and, uh, you know, how, how, uh, how great everything was. And so I think my prayers were definitely answered there. And, um, you know, there was a, a, a good outcome. And, you know, I saw a side to this person uh, in my attending that I didn't know existed. I thought this was going to be a hateful, terrible experience that, you know, of course, my luck, I'm delivering this, this baby with her. And, and I know that 
<laughs> how she feels about me. And uh, so I was worried about the whole thing and it went over very well. And um, I think yeah. that was definitely the Lord's intervention. What a blessing. You know, you had said at the beginning, you wanted to tell people because you were feeling down and you just wanted people to feel bad for you. Uh, sounds like that's not how you feel anymore. Why do you want to share this story with people? You know, I think uh, even just the the patient's testament that people in difficult situations uh, um, can power through something and uh, can, you know, come come out on the other end as a better person. And, and you know, I'd love to see uh, how their family is doing today because she just was so confident and, and such a great testament as a, as a powerful, strong woman that the world might think is, uh, you know, dealt uh, completely a difficult hand of cards, but um, she just was uh, uh, incredible. And I learned a lot from taking care of her. I was just impressed with her every time we met. And so um, I think people need to see that. And uh, um, and then at the same time too, um, you know, I think uh, it's a powerful story for, for other people facing difficult decisions uh, in their pregnancies. And I think it's a uh, something that needs to be shared because, uh, you know, we need to know what we're up against as as Catholics, you know, as Catholic uh, medical students, residents and physicians that, um, you know, we are really fighting a lot of folks out there. And there are a lot of people who disagree with us. And, uh, you know, we need to find ways to, to overcome that and, and let them know that, you know, these aren't just silly ideas and views we have. This is who we are as people. And this is what it means to practice Catholic medicine. And, you know, I think uh, we just need more short stories like that shared. People in medical training, whether whether it be medical school, residency, nursing school, working, working as a nurse, or even, as you know, being a, a new attending, there's a little learning the ropes. What advice would you have for folks who find themselves in a parallel situation? I think, you know, folks definitely need to try to find who the other individuals are going to be in their camp and um, whether they're Christian or whether they're just going to be level-headed and, and uh, want to hear your ideas and, and not criticize you for them. And so you definitely need to have a, a sounding board there and, and people that agree with you. And so it's nice to have a supportive family at home and a supportive older sister who went through the program a year before I did. And so um, I had a lot of people supporting me during times where it would have been easy to just, you know, throw my faith out the window and say, let's just do what people want me to do. And, um, you know, I'll get by easier. I probably won't get fired. I won't keep ruffling everybody's feathers and things will just be, <laughs> just be peachy. And so uh, it's easy to, to want to give up. And so you definitely need other people, whether it's at work or at home who can, support you in these things and say they're proud of you for doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, amen. I mean, thank you for standing up for that patient and, and her mother, you know, and uh, if I lived in the mountains of Montana or Wyoming or wherever you're at out there, I'd be out bringing my kids to you. So on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you done? You're, you're done with residency now. Uh, a 10. Definitely. Yeah. That's fair. Patrick, thanks for being on the show. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about you in the future, and hopefully you have a, a great sunny day out there in the mountains. All right. Thanks for having me, Dr. Mullally. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the unfriendly trivia question. <laughs> <laughs> right. So out of the 741 family medicine training programs, how many now have an integrated abortion part, not an elective, but a part that all the residents are expected to do? Is it 11? 20, 39, 51, or 106? And the answer? 39. Yeah, I would suggest that it's probably going up every week. Uh, I know in, in my specialty of family medicine, they have, you know, all the specialties have their official uh, colleges and whatnot. The American Academy of Family Medicine is for, for family docs. And that, there's nothing bigger on their mind than to get everybody doing abortions and everybody pro-abortion and pro, you know, really the gender-affirming surgery and everything. And so I'm not part of that organization anymore, but that is their objective, very openly stated. They want everybody to be doing this stuff. So I bet you that number's unfortunately going to go higher. And those are the kind of people that tend toward leadership for whatever reason. And those are the people who are caring for your kids when they ask you to step out of the room and talk to the kid in private. Ugh. 
Top three takeaways, Andrew. Number one, there's a wide difference in friendliness uh, among residency programs. We say friendliness. Really what we mean is somebody who won't make you sell your conscience or your faith at the door. Um, so look around. Uh, talk to people, mainly in, I would say, like-minded people to, to know the ins and outs because there's not a list that you can Google. Uh, number two, sure. Patrick brought up a really good point. The program director uh, is you know the the judge and jury for many of the things so you want to have a conversation and have the program director know where you're coming from and kind of get their word for it in writing ideally that they're going to support you when when other people challenge you and that will be a big thing towards success or failure in residency and then number three a little shout out for novus medicus uh which we we like to talk about through the cma for young members but in in residency training what you need is you need peers and support from others and you need a lot of grace and and prayer and camaraderie and novus medicus is that for folks so look it up uh through the cma yep novusmedicus.org n-o-v-u-s-m-e-d-i-c-u-s.org that means the young physician and if you know somebody who is a young physician or a medical student or pre-med student they might just be interested in us so Thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find all episodes, including this one, on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top, and you can search over 290 episodes by topic or guest. And believe it or not, we're up with the times. We even have a video version of our podcast. If you click on the YouTube link near the top of our homepage, drdoctor.org, and you can also submit a question where you it's, there's a box that says submit a question. You just click there, you submit it. And if you have an idea for a great topic, we, we love great topics. So that's where you put those as well. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.